Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confessions. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Before we get started, if you'll join me in prayer, let's pray for both us and the understanding of God's word. We might be effectual doers of his word, not just merely puffed up with knowledge. And also, if you could join me in prayer for our pastor as uh, he's been sick and has been bedridden due to that, and uh, so we want to lift him up as well. So let's pray. Father, thank you for being such a magnificent and loving and caring and gracious God. There is no one like you. There is nothing to which and no one to whom we might compare you. You are holy other, and you are our God. We are utterly dependent on you, and that's a great place to be. Father, we need you. We're grateful that Through Jesus Christ, we have access to you, that even right now, your ear is inclined to hear our prayers. We're grateful for that wonderful truth that if we humble ourselves before you and cast our anxiety on you, Father, you care for us. You are the one who cares. How great that is. No better place to be than under the care of the great physician. And so, Lord, we lift up our pastor to you. So grateful for knowing him. So grateful for him being in our lives. Grateful to him for the work you have done, the grace that you've shown him, and the development and the skill that you have given him to be able to cut straight the Word of God and to feed your people. And we have been the recipients of such feeding. We ask that you would be his source of comfort, that you would be his strength, that you would be his refuge, that the whole aspect that you never leave or forsake, the aspect that you are ever-present in our time of trouble would be a great encouragement and comfort to him. Lord, we ask that you bring healing to his body quickly and completely, if that indeed be your will. And help us this hour, Lord, to understand your word. Again, not so that we would be puffed up with knowledge, but that we would be effectual doers, giving all the praise and all the glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the year was 2011. And I took my family to Disney World. My youngest was 
the ripe old age of five. And my second daughter was six. Boys were a bit older. And as we entered into Disney World and decided what we were going to try first, we decided that we would try Space Mountain. Now, one thing you need to know, my daughters had never experienced a roller coaster before. They, I don't even think they've been, really at that time, had been to an amusement park. And my wife and I were left standing with a philosophical parenting decision to make. Do we tell them what they're about ready to do? <laughs> or do we not tell them? And we measured the risks and the reward on both decisions. And we decided not to tell them. It had been a while since I'd been on Space Mountain, a few little things I forgot. <laughs> Some of that data may have been helpful in making a different decision, but nonetheless, there we were. Now, praise God, six seats, family of six. That worked out real well. Now, the thing that I forgot about was the fact that there's nobody sitting next to you, right? Everybody's in their own individual seat. That means I can't see my daughter who's in front of me. And she gets in, we're all in, and we're about ready to go, and I had no idea what to say, except, hold on! <laughs> and that's a familiar phrase to all of us. It's a phrase that we use when we're about ready to go through a trying time. Something's scary, something's hard, something's difficult, something's painful and uncomfortable, and we say, hold on that's supposed to give us some encouragement. And the whole idea of having nothing to hold on to makes the situation even more frightening. And in this text in Hebrews 4, the concern of the author is that those who don't yet know Christ would not see Christ for who he really is, and that those who do know Christ would be tempted to fall away from the faith when the trials and the temptations come. And so he's writing to a church that's facing tribulation and trial. Hebrews 2, he says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. In other words, there's the temptation that we would be disloyal, that we would be distrusting, that we would be disobedient to God in face of temptation and trial. Matter of fact, the author does explain throughout the book of Hebrews some of the sinful behavior that we might actually practice when we're under trial. Some sinful behavior we might be tempted, we might gravitate toward when we're facing tough times. In Hebrews 12, he says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Oftentimes, when we face uncomfortable, trying, challenging times, we're tempted to quarrel with others. We're tempted to create conflict. You know, there's a sense that when, when things are going 
tough for me that I, I want to find somebody to blame. I, I just want to cause trouble, right? I'm going through a tough time. Curse you, bed, right, for having a corner that I might stub my toe, right? We'll yell at inanimate objects. We'll, we'll be disruptive throughout the day because we're uncomfortable and we'll be cantankerous at times. And he is fearful of that, that people will fall away. That no one, he says in verse 16, no one is sexually immoral or unholy. There's a temptation to indulge our fleshly desires when we're going through trial and tough times. Hebrews 13, he says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to do good. It's easy to neglect showing hospitality and serving others when we ourselves are going through a trial and tough times. It goes on to say, to keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We're tempted not to believe that. We're tempted to fall in love, even more in love with money for either what it might bring to us that would bring us comfort and possibly even bring to us some relief from the trouble or trial that we're going through. He says also, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. At times when we are going through tough times, we are tempted to follow erroneous teaching. We want to disregard sound teaching. We want to, we gravitate towards these things that promise to meet our fleshly desires. Do, do you want better children? Do you want success? And if that's a trial that you're going through, you're going to be really tempted when you hear that. You, you want to stop feeling depressed. And, and so for a fix, we will often gravitate toward errant teachings, falling away from the truth the church, and the Lord. In addition, he says, verse 17 of Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. There is this temptation to disregard the teaching of your spiritual leaders because as watchers of your soul, we don't always give you pragmatic counsel for your flesh. Because we care about your soul. And so sometimes that won't be attractive or appealing because the advice or the counsel that we might be giving is a balm for your soul, but it might not necessarily appease or give you comfort from the physical ailment. To ensure this doesn't happen, the author of Hebrews draws our attention to the supremacy and to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. When we focus our attention on him, when we look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, then we remain loyal, and then we remain believing and obedient. We, we say, like Peter said, when others were falling away, where else will we go? You're the Holy One of God, and you alone have the words of eternal life. When we focus our attention on him, seeing him as an example, then we obey. We stop using our trials as excuses for disobedience or disloyalty or distrust. And the author wishes for no one to miss out on the promised rest in Christ and the promised help to persevere under trial. We're broken people, we live in a broken world, and we have to deal with broken pieces every day. 
It is tiring. It is often depressing living in such a sin-cursed world. We daily fight against the circumstances of life that tempt us to be disloyal to Christ and our calling, to disbelieve his love and his care for us, and even to disobey his wise commands. The author points out that even Jesus learned obedience through suffering. He also points out that the difference from the immature and mature are those who reject truth during trial and those who practice the truth, no matter the circumstance. He says, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, and the mature are described as those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so these three verses, Hebrews 4, 14, 15, and 16, are here to encourage us as disciples who are actively pursuing Christ's likeness, actively pursuing the glory of God in the midst of trial and temptation. And they're here to give us practical approach to avoiding such pitfalls of falling away. Again, we're often told that when we're facing trying and frightening times, tough times to hold on. And in here, in these passages, we have three truths that we can hold on to. Three truths that we can hold on to when we face trials and run to the God's throne of grace. First is this, hold on to the supremacy of Christ. Hold on to the supremacy of Christ. Look with me at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Since then brings to mind this logical conclusion or implication of certain truths. Our theology, what we think and what we believe about God impacts what we do. And, and what the author of Hebrews is saying is let us hold on to our confession. That Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is the great high priest, that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. Hold fast and draw near. The truth here is that Jesus is our great high priest. We have a great high priest. I love the Greek word here. It's real simple. For great, it is the word mega. Mega. He is our mega priest. There's a big gulp. And then there's the mega gulp. Got it? <laughs> he is our mega priest. He is our great priest. He stands above any human priest. Jesus is our great priest. And I want you to see four personal things about his priesthood for which we can offer supreme praise. One, he is our great priest. We will always have him. Since then, we have, you may translate it as, since then, we are always having. We are always having a great high priest in Jesus Christ. He is our great priest. And it is collective. It is a community thing. He is all our, if we are in Christ, if we have rec recognized our need for a Savior because we recognize that we are sinners and separated from God because He is holy and we are not, and we rep recognize that God has provided the remedy through His Son, Jesus Christ, and we embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and we are in Christ, then He is our great High Priest. We all confess this truth, individual believers, community believers as a whole, and so 
The author in Hebrews 3 says, take care, brothers. There's something we need to take care of. There's something we need to pay attention to. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. This is this mutual fellowship ministry of one anothering one another where we exhort one another. We, we are engaged in each other's lives. We are discipling one another. We are being discipled by one another. And we are engaged in each other's lives for the in purpose. And now, I, you gotta love this phrase, right? As long as it is called today. I love that phrase. It's a funny phrase. There's a sense, when is it not called today? Yesterday and tomorrow, right? But then once you get there, it's what? Yeah, okay, so you get the point. He's saying as long as it's called today. Is it called today, today? Okay, we do it today. Okay, that's kind of the point he's making, all right? I don't know about you, I, it, it's funny to me. Um, but look what he says. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, sin promises for us relief from the trial. And it's deceitful because it results in even greater trial. And it results in absolute misery. For look what he says, oh I'm sorry, you're not there, but hear what he says. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is a community thing. This is a personal thing. He is our great high priest. Secondly, he is our perfect high priest. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. He's holy, he's innocent, he's unstained, he's separated from sinners, he's exalted above the heavens. He is unstained and he's absolutely perfect. Whereas priests made atonement for their own sin with the blood of animals, Jesus Christ needed no atonement, but instead carried his own blood to make atonement for all. Third, he is our forever high priest. He is a mega priest and a forever priest. I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He will never leave us or forsake us. And he is our sufficient high priest. We need no one else. This is all so much more than human priests who are limited by their health, by their sin, by their frailty, by eventual death. But Christ is eternal. Christ is perfect. Christ is sufficient. And Christ is ours. A second mark of Christ's supremacy is that the human priest merely entered into the temporary sanctuary of God but Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus passed through the heavens. He has entered the very presence of God, not merely an earthly sanctuary. The traveling tabernacle that was established by God in Exodus 25, that was temporary. The temple built in Jerusalem by King Solomon was destroyed. It was rebuilt, only to be destroyed again. These are mere shadows of the permanent and the transcendent temple of God in heaven. The author of Hebrews says, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
It is this temple that Jesus has entered and is currently serving as our advocate, interceding on our behalf. He is then our hope, and he is then our anchor for our soul. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor, the author of Hebrews says, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is our mega priest. He is our forever priest. And the third mark of Christ's supremacy is that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Jesus uniquely combines humanity and divinity to be our perfect high priest. He is our savior. He is our God. He is our creator. He is our life giver. He is the sustainer. He is the propitiator of our sins. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because of him and him alone and his gracious act, God looks at us differently. The wrath of God has been turned away. The wrath of God has been appeased. We are no longer enemies, but we are friends by the grace of God. So since he is superior to all, then let us hold tightly our confession of him as Lord and as Savior. He is the combination of greatness, exaltation, humanity, and deity. When under trial... Hold on to the supremacy of Christ. It's a lot of images that go out often about people going through tragedy and trial and suffering and pain. And, and one common image may strike you, which would be a, a young child who you can imagine has gone through tragedy and is holding tightly their stuffed animal. And I just want you to get that picture because that's what we want to be doing. When we're going through those trials and we're going through those trying times, when we're going through those temptations, let us hold tightly to our confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior and as one who is holding tightly to us as well. The second truth to hold on to is hold on to the sympathy of Christ. Hold on to the sympathy of Christ. Verse 15 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows how easy it is for us to stumble our way through life. This is not a sympathy that is ready to condone sinful behavior. It's a sympathy that means fellow feeling. Though he was sinless, he had a real human body, mind, and emotions with their inherent weaknesses. He was ignorant and was taught. He thought, he walked, he talked like a baby before he thought and walked and talked like a man. This is why our text asserts that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He lived with a human body with all its limitations except for sin. It is a fact that if you have two pianos in the same room and you strike a note on one piano, that the other piano's same exact note will resonate even though no one's hand has touched it. And that's called sympathetic resonance. Christ's instrument was just like ours in every way. 
In his body, he passed through the heavens. And when a chord is struck in the weakness of our human instrument, it resonates in his. There is no note of human experience that does not play on Christ's exalted human instrument. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses since he has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. He faced the full range of temptation and succeeded. He walked through, as we do, the trials, sufferings, and circumstances of this life. With a constant push and a constant pull and a tug to forego being loyal, to forego trusting to forgo being obedient in order to gain the comfort and the release from fighting against the struggles and trials of human life. He walked through just as we do, and in his humanity, he lived day to day as a human in prayer, by the word, dependent on the Holy Spirit. He never stopped being God, but he did not live his day-to-day life by his godness, but by his humanness. He did not fight the internal temptations that we do, since Jesus was not born in sin as we are, but the extent of external temptations, namely the onslaught of Satan, greatly made up for any lack of internal Temptations. He did not face the exact details of our lives, but he definitely experienced the realm of general experiences that we all face. He didn't have the husband you have, but he knows what it is to be taken for granted, to not be thanked. He didn't have your wife, but he knows what it's like not to be honored or respected, to not have your wishes carried out faithfully without complaint or rebellion. He didn't have your boss, but he knows what it is like to be mistreated. He didn't have your neighbor, but he knows what it is like to be insulted. He didn't go to your school, but he knows what it's like to be disliked, to be gossiped about, to have people tell lies about you, to have people treat you like you are dumb, to even be bullied. He walked as a man and was well acquainted with sleeplessness, hunger, discomfort, and loneliness. He was acquainted with not being liked, despised even, and not being thanked. He was acquainted with people not agreeing with him. He was acquainted with insults, people not listening to his life-giving truth, death of loved ones, near-death experiences, pain, grief, and ultimately death, even death on a cross. He was tempted to ease the struggle. He was tempted to ease the pain. He was tempted to ease the discomfort by being disloyal, by being distrusting, and by being disobedient. He experienced what it was like to live in the flesh in a sinful and sin-cursed world, yet without sin. He obeyed even when doing so would mean even more pain and suffering. He experienced temptation to the maximum. We have never experienced temptation like Jesus because he experienced it beyond our breaking point. Now, some of you are marathon runners. I can't sympathize with any of you. I mean, I can sympathize with you up to mile five. After that, I got no clue what it's like. But those of you who have experienced 27 miles, you know what it's like at six, at seven, at 10, at 13, 
at 17. I heard 19's really rough. You know what it's like because you've taken it to that degree. I've thrown in the towel way beforehand. See, we all have breaking points. But Jesus never broke. He experienced temptation like no one else. You never know how strong something is unless you actually have to stand against it. You never know what it's like to struggle with temptation if we always give in. We never get to experience that joy of what it's like to be victorious because we cave in as soon as it becomes uncomfortable. I just want to say to you, church, please value godliness above the comfort that may come. Value godliness above it all. For those of you who have battled temptation, you know what it's like. You know how invigorating it is to continually grow and to become more like Christ. You know what it is to struggle. And more importantly, so does Jesus. He fought every temptation, every time, fully, experiencing the unmitigated force of each temptation until he had succeeded in defeating each one, coming out on the other side victorious. John MacArthur says, Jesus never sinned, but he understands sin better than any man. He has seen it more clearly. He has fought it more diligently than any of us could ever be able to do. His sinlessness increased his sensitivity to sin. Unlike us, Jesus faced the extent of temptation without sinning. He was completely human. He leaned on the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. If he would have sinned, then he would have needed atonement, and he would have been no better than the other priests who had to make sacrifice for their own sins. Our sinless Savior provided for us perfect redemption and a perfect example. That immediate sense of release from struggling against temptation, it is appealing. So appealing that we don't want to keep on fighting. This was the concern of the author of Hebrews, that we would just throw in the towel and fall away when facing trial. He was afraid that we'd want more the release from the struggle than the glory of God. Jesus is our example of one who fought and struggled against temptation, lovingly and valuing more the things of God than the release from the struggle. Jesus' victorious experience with temptation provides for us sympathy, encouragement, strength, and victory for us in our temptation. Kent Hughes in his commentary says, whatever we may be going through, there is not a note we can play, not a melody or a dirge, no minor key, no discordant note that does not evoke a sympathetic resonance in Jesus. He mastered the instrument while he was here on earth, and he wears it in heaven. Do you want sympathy? Do not go anywhere else. Dare not to go to anyone but him. 
And so in order to stand firm, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us hold tightly to the supremacy of Jesus Christ and to the sympathy of Jesus Christ. And last, let us hold on to the strength of Christ. To obtain this strength, we must draw near to him. We are to come to God with all reverence and awe, and why shouldn't we? He is supreme. I mean, there's no one higher to make our appeal. He is sympathetic. There's no one more understanding of our plight. In light of the sympathy and supremacy of Christ, then let us not hesitate to approach him in worship and prayer. The term for draw near is often in a cultic sense, it, meaning to come into the presence of God in order to worship him, in order to exalt him. We draw near to him through tough times because he's the only one. He's the only true comfort that can give us what we need to succeed and to endure. When the nation of Israel was under trial and God spoke to the prophet Isaiah, he told him, comfort my people. Comfort them. And the topic was the bigness and the greatness and the magnificence of God. The greatest comfort for God's people is God himself. And at the end of that chapter in Isaiah 40, we get a very familiar passage. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They who wait for the Lord. These are people who have an unfailing trust, an unwavering faith in the wisdom of God. They will not take matters into their own hands. They will not seek other resources, but instead they wait for the Lord. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Love that picture. Have you ever seen an eagle take off? There's something quite fascinating about it. Because as you would look at the bird, and then as you would look at the wings, and you'd look at everything about it, you would think this is probably going to be a pretty kind of herky-jerky takeoff. But then he takes off, and you just, whoa! And it's majestic, because it just seems so effortless. And the image here is that those who are waiting on the Lord and who are strengthened by him will go through these trials and these tough times in a way that just seems effortless because they are doing it by and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God that works mightily within us. We don't get strength to endure and remain loyal and obedient to our Lord by turning to anything other than him. Those who wait in true faith are renewed in strength. They, they can continue to serve the Lord while looking for his saving work. And the author then describes to what we are to draw near we come to the throne of grace. This is a reverent reference to God's presence. The throne denotes a seat of dominion and authority. It's often seen as a place of judgment. Psalm 9, 4 says, You have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Now, when I was in grade school, the principal's office was known as the place of judgment. 
And we pick up on that later on in years. You know, if, if somebody comes to you and, and, and says, Andrew, uh, I need to see you, right? What's the normal response? Ooh. <laughs> right? Somebody's in trouble. You know, somebody's got to go see the principal. Okay. Because that was our thinking. Nowadays, many principals are opening their office doors and welcoming students to come in and hang out with them periodically. That's completely different. <laughs> now, I want you to understand, I want you to take that image with you because that's the idea here. When the author of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, he's saying something real revolutionary. Because the throne is known for the place where I go for judgment. But now it's, it's described as a throne of grace. And he says, let us go with confidence. And the word for confident here is actually a compound of two words, which means all and speaking. And, and ultimately what it means together is that you come with frankness of speech. In other words, you have permission to speak. You have permission to come into this throne room, and you have permission to speak. Wow! See, that's, that's ultimately what they would have said. This would stand out as something revolutionary in thought. And this is picked up a little bit in the two great throne room passages in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4. In Isaiah 6, again, we get this incredible picture of the majesty and the magnificence of the throne room of God. And Isaiah says, woe is me. See, he recognizes I don't deserve to be in this place, and yet by God's grace I am. But I know I don't deserve to be here. He knew he didn't deserve it. And there's a sense of awe. There's a sense of shock. There's a sense of surprise. And then in Revelation 4, John says something that, again, would be a little bit shocking. And that's why he says, after this I looked, and then he says, and behold... And when you get the word behold, typically it means you need to pay attention to this. I'm about ready to tell you something that could blow your mind. Okay? That's the translation. No. <laughs> but the point of that passage is when he says behold, he wants you to pay attention to something that's going to really stand out. And this is what he says. After this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now you might think to yourself, it's a door. What's the big deal? It's a door in heaven. It's a door in the throne room of God. It, it, it is meaning that we have access through the grace, through the mercy, and through the fact that we are in Christ Jesus to enter that door. That's the point. That's why it's shocking. And we need to feel that. We need to recognize that. And when we come into his presence, this is a privilege. That when we speak to him and the fact that he inclines his ears to hear us, that that should just overwhelm us with an incredible sense of gratitude and that privilege that I get to speak with the creator God. And in this case, I'm told to draw near to him with confidence to the throne room of grace. What an awesome thing that we have. And this is where we find our strength. This is what we hold on to. And just that recognition 
that we have this confidence as a result of guilt being removed by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we're adopted by God into his family so that we call him Father. There is no condemnation in him. Nothing can separate us from that love. Christ has passed through the heavens. He's actively serving as our advocate, interceding for us. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. There is one God. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is our priest. This is our great high priest. This is our forever high priest. Why would we ever think about turning to anyone else? He is our all and all. This confidence is because we know we are in right standing with God through Jesus Christ. We come to attain mercy. We come to attain grace. He provides pardon for our many failures. He gives us grace provides us the strength we need for the demands of serving him. We need God's help to remain loyal. We need his help to remain believing. We need his help to continue in obedience. We receive mercy for our past failures, and we receive grace for our present and future needs. This is a timely grace. And so we move forward knowing that we're right standing with God, with the ability to succeed in putting off the old man, putting on the new, and proclaiming the excellencies of God, bringing glory and honor to his name in the midst of trying temptations. We need his mercy and grace to help run the race. In Hebrews 12, he says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And he closes in that chapter by saying, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. For your God is a great God, and you have a great high priest, a forever perfect high priest, and he bids you to come because the door is open to draw near to him, knowing full well that you will receive mercy and grace in your time of need. There is a great concern of falling away when we are under trial, and that should concern us. And that should ever be our prayer. God gives us what we need and let us then hold on to the supremacy of Christ, the sympathy of Christ, and the strength of Christ. In closing, I'd like you just to listen to this poem, just brief excerpts from a poem. It's in, simply entitled, Jesus Is. Some of you may be familiar with it. When I fall, he lifts me up. When I fail, he forgives me. When I am weak, he is strong. When I am lost, he is the way. When I am afraid, he is my courage. When I stumble, he steadies me. When I am hurt, he heals me. When I am broken, he mends me. 
When I am blind, he leads me. When I am hungry, he feeds me. When I face trials, he is with me. When I face persecution, he stills me. When I face problems, he comforts me. When I face loss, he provides for me. When I face death, he carries me home. He is everything for everybody, everywhere, every time, and in every way. He is God. He is faithful, I am his, and he is mine. My Father in heaven can whip the father of this world. And so, if you're wondering why I feel so secure, understand this. He said it, that settles it, God is in control, I am on his side, and that means all is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for the, just the great news about Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we have access to you through your Son. And just to, just to reminisce over his current activities in interceding for us and being our advocate, and Lord, that's just amazing. And we thank you for that. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. And Father, help us. For the temptations are real and thankful that we have what we need to withstand. Cultivate within us a greater love for your glory than being released from the struggle of a temptation. To you be all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen.